This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Michigan Farm Bureau CEO is Scott Piggott a thoughtful leader who has a heart to serve, a mind to solve problems, and a spirit to seize an opportunity, along with the passion to help those who need a hand up. Scott understands the need, the opportunities, and with the Farm Bureau family of companies committing to serve our mission of creating a food secure state, I can't think of a better guest to have this season of Thanksgiving and beyond. Stay with us today as Jerry Brisson and I unpack with Michigan Farm Bureau CEO Scott Piggott the potential for partnership, policy change, and the procurement of food for those struggling under a food insecure lifestyle. That's next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. As promised, Scott Pickett, the CEO for Michigan Farm Bureau, joins Jerry and I today in our WJR studio. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I have to say, now that you're on the board of the Food Bank Council, it has been such a delight to hear from you very regularly and, you know, as part of the robust conversations we're having to, you know, make the, the dream a reality about a food-secure Michigan. And we, we just finished our, uh, our uh, strategic planning session. It was fascinating and so many great things to talk about. I hope we can pick on a few of those during the show. But before we get, you know, right into the deep end, remind our listeners a little bit about you know, who's Scott? Why, why, why are you here? <laughs> well, I am blessed to work for the farmers of the state. So I work for about 40,000 farmers across Michigan. Uh, I'm blessed to, to work in an organization that's been around for over 100 years. Uh, it is a farmer's organization. Our board of directors, our president are all elected farmers. And uh, we work really hard to help our farmers have a better life, um, to have a better way of life. Farming's changed a lot in the last, you know, from 100 years ago when most people worked on farms. Uh, Today, that's not the case. And it takes a lot of uh, effort and time to explain, in some cases, farming. Um, From my standpoint, it's not too hard. I I live and work on a a farm. Um, My family's been on the same piece of ground for 180 years. Um, My kids will be the seventh generation to to live out in in that area. so my life is agriculture. I raise corn, wheat, and soybeans with my family and, uh, and beef cattle. So we have moms and babies walking around the pasture. And uh, right now they're a little closer to the barns because it's cold outside. <laughs> uh, but the farmers I work for, agriculture in, in Michigan is very diverse. There's over 350 different types of crops and commodities grown in our state. Farms, um, I've got uh, members that have five acres of raspberries and do very well. Uh, I have some uh, of our farmers that uh, that have a thousand animals, um, and they need that to be able to scale uh, to a, to an extent to involve their family. It um, it is a very changing, a dynamic, very technologically driven industry. I don't think people understand our use of global positioning systems and our tractors, our uh, 
our use of drones and drone technology. We do that quite a bit to look at our crops. Um, it is a very advanced agriculture, and I'm very, very proud to represent it. Well, Scott, it's great to have you, and thanks for taking the time, and um, thanks for serving with us on the Food Bank Council of Michigan's Board of Directors. Uh, I guess that kind of makes both of you guys my boss, but I don't really want to <laughs> remind you of that too much. Right. It'll just send us off into a, are we really? When Did we really sign up for that? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's more than anyone should have to bear, for sure. Um, but so uh, I, I think I want to, to, as Jerry said, jump into the deep end of the pool here. And this is the conversation we've had a little bit. So kind of the state of food and 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 while the the headlines maybe have have gone away a little bit the war in the ukraine the aggression by russia onto the sovereign nation of the ukraine has really sent not just ripple but really tidal wave effects across the economy but particularly the agricultural economy could you unpack that a little bit for us i'll do my best um We've always had happenstances, things happen in the world that affect our agricultural economy. Uh, there are a lot of production areas in our, in our world that when something happens in Brazil to soybean production, it affects the way that, that we price our soybeans here in the United States. Um, we are in a global economy. So Ukraine and Russia produce about one-third of the world's wheat supply. Well, wheat in the United States, um, you know, we don't, we compete, but we're not at the levels of Europe and, and the Russian uh, states as well as Ukraine. So when there's a supply chain uh, alteration any place in the world, we feel that ripple. And when you talk about wheat and wheat production, um, if you are growing more wheat in our country, which we grow a significant amount here in Michigan, uh, when you need to grow more of that, you're growing less of other things. Mm. So wheat acreage will compete for soybean acreage, which eventually will compete for corn acreage. All of those things being influenced by a changing energy structure in our country. Um, the ripple effects of, of the European Union talking about Russian oil, and do they use it, do they not? Natural gas pipelines being interrupted. All of that has a direct effect on agriculture. Today, uh, we're spending over $5 a gallon on diesel to be able to fuel our tractors to fuel our farms. Uh, that's $1.50 more per gallon than what we paid just a year ago today. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, natural gas and, and petroleum movement around the world, those have a direct impact on our fertilizer prices. We use manures, just like we have for thousands of years, to raise crops. But not every farm has livestock. And we use petroleum-based fertilizers, nitrogen, potassiums, um, and phosphorus. Nitrogen-based fertilizers tripled in prices in some, in some cases this last spring. Phil, to your point, when something happens on a, that affects the global agricultural scale, the ripple effects get felt around the world. And it's not just for that one crop hmm. like wheat. It affects all the other cereal crops. It affects, cereal, it affects energy production. Uh, a large portion of our corn in the United States goes to ethanol production. When you change acreage because you need to raise more wheat because it's not coming in or more soybeans, it has a ripple effect in a lot of directions, to your point. Wow. So I did read, Scott, that um, I, a large percentage, I'm going to say maybe a third of the ingredients it takes to make fertilizer, potash, so the, mm -hmm. comes from this 
Ukrainian Russian region, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons, you know, for the price tripling. Now I, I want to I want you to comment on that, but I also want you to pick it up there and take it because the reason we use fertilizer is to increase yield. So if we're not can't afford to use as much fertilizer, it stands to reason yields are going to be down. Maybe not this year, maybe, but next year, the year at, and and my point being that this is not something that's going to stop in the by next growing season. No, you you, you make a, a fantastic point. Today, our commodity prices are up from where they had been in the past. It helps a far, farmer to weather the storm. Um, you're also seeing those increase, increases in food prices. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody is inside of the stores. Thanksgiving this year, um, it's about 20% more expensive than Thanksgiving last year. So food prices um, also follow the same way that our commodity prices ebb and flow. Right now, we're, we're doing okay with our commodity prices on various grains. The difficulty becomes we're getting more higher input costs, whether it's diesel, whether it's fertilizers, whether it's seed or chemical costs for our crops. When those commodity prices, when the price of corn goes down, those other prices, those input prices, don't normally track. They don't, to your point, it's not just a once once in a, a year shot and then everything else returns to normalcy. No, in fact, our input prices will continue to stay high as we ride a very variable commodity market. They're mm-hmm. commodities for a reason. Farmers are, are price takers, not price makers. Uh, we sell commodities on an open market. When those input prices change, it, it changes our ability to make food. You know, I don't foresee, uh, you know, outside of weather events, agriculture has continued to produce um, to the extent where we feed the country. And we export quite a few grains and, and meats from our, our nation. Um, the hope is that we continue to stay viable on our farms so that we can produce the things that we need first and foremost, like milk and meat and grains. Well, Jerry, I know you're chomping at the bit here, but I'm, I'm going to make you wait, <laughs> which is why I love my job on this show. Between so, you and the producer, yeah, uh, you you're need right. a little yeah. help to make me wait. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this part of the job. Scott Piggott, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're going to be back with you. We want you to stay with us on this edition of Food First Michigan. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Scott Piggott, the CEO for the Michigan Farm Bureau, is our guest in the studio today. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry, I, I wouldn't let you go extend that last segment any longer, but this one, hey, I'm going to throw it to you and get out of the way. <laughs> well, you know, my experience uh, is that every perfect storm, farmers end up with a perfect solution or something like it. Um, I would never bet against a farmer in terms of figuring out what they have to do next. I just wouldn't. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a business that, that, that um, teaches such creativity uh, depending on what the variables actually 
turn out to be. Uh, and and all of them have pluses and minuses. When there's a great year and huge yields, that can affect price in a negative way, and you would think people would be making a lot of money, but nope. And then there's a terrible year and terrible yields, but the prices go up and people figure out what to do. And, and, and you know, knowing farmers for as long as we have, we have a tremendous amount of faith in the farming community um, to figure out what they need to do. So much so, in fact, that at the... Um, at the strategic planning meeting we were talking about how to get to a food secure state and and we were looking at you know well what is the capacity of of michigan farmers to to produce all the food that would be needed and your your answer and i i think i got this right but if i don't you can you can say jerry that wasn't what i said your answer was how about this just tell me what you need and i got the rest (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't worry about it, right? And so so talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about that level of confidence in, in what farmers can do and will do if they know what needs to be done. I'll, I'll start where you ended, if they know what needs to be done. Um, I have been blessed over the last decade to learn more about need and food insecurity in our state. Uh, I have great mentors in, in both Phil and Jerry and others who have who have helped me to understand that it's not uh, food and in, food insecurity and hunger are not specific to any one position in the state, any one place. Um, I learned that some of our most food insecure areas are rural areas, and I didn't understand that when uh, when we first started having this conversation. I think about if when our farmers understand that we're not talking about some. Um, far away municipal place that they that they don't normally go to, that that's where hunger lives. It's it's not it's not the case, and I think any of the folks that I'm blessed to work for, when they find out that hunger exists in their own communities, when they understand that there's a different way that they could grow or produce something that could help to solve a problem, um, I've seen it. Uh, you guys have seen it. We have farmers that work with the food banks across the state. A lot of times we're not very good at telling their story. I was with some farmers earlier uh, in the springtime, and they were talking about um, instead of going to the county fair and, and, and spending money at a county fair on whatever the process was or project was, uh, that county farm bureau decided that they wanted to buy freezers for all of their food pantries in their county and fill them throughout a year, commit to keeping them filled with, with beef and pork at their own cost. The people I work for are very caring, thoughtful people. Um, they farm because it's a way of life. It's not, yes, it's a business, but it's a way of life that they've chosen. And it's got all those ebbs and flows that you mentioned. Uh, I have no doubt of the capacity of agriculture to be able to address some of the hunger issues that we have in our state. Um, we're a cold climate state, but we also grow lots of fruits and vegetables. Knowing that hunger doesn't take a doesn't take winter off, um, and neither do our, our farmers, but understanding that we can really put a foot forward, we already do. Uh, this year, we had the largest apple crop in our state's history. Wow. And uh, it's, it, was a, it was a very good crop. We had some short crops these last couple years. I know a lot of farmers uh, throughout the state that donated a lot of apples to the causes that you guys represent, um, and they took those causes as their own. So I have no doubt in the in the giving and the thoughtfulness of farmers in our state to address an issue as long as they can understand it and know how to know how to fix it that's what they do so i uh which is 
inspirational. I mean, honestly, um, the the growers we work with are are exactly the way you described it. I was walking through our warehouse at a time when we're really light on inventory, and I saw all these gray wooden crates, huge gray wooden crates, all apples. It was like walking through a, a, a little city, all these skyscrapers <laughs> of, of apple crates. And, uh, and it's because they heard the call. It's because they heard the call. They knew we were hurting for for uh, for fresh fruits and vegetables, and they said, "We got it. Here you go." I mean, you know, and we certainly purchase some, but but a lot gets donated as well. And it's that mix of of purchasing and and donations that's really the right mix because you know farmers need to make a living, and and everything we do in, in the food banking world that can that can help, I guess, moderate or or let let the growers know we're committed to a certain amount of of purchasing they'll always give us the best price i mean always and uh and then when there is something to donate they'll donate it you know our, the donations have always gone up as we've been able to commit more on our side mm-hmm. and it works both ways so when our donors give we say well every dollar gets you three meals well this is why it's these it's these relationships that get developed over periods of time where everybody understands what everybody needs it's never a one-way solution right it's we all depend on each other and we we think one of the biggest keys to success in reaching rural communities is stimulating the economy as well as getting these guaranteed loads at a certain price to everyone who needs food because they're food insecure somewhere in that mix of and we talk about dairy in particular where we know dairy is milk fresh milk is one of the things most requested from the people that we serve and we could use more fresh milk well you can't donate an infinite amount of fresh milk there's this relationship where you buy some and you get some donated and and you start to involve people and we're talking about do we could do we should we be thinking about more milk processing it's produced all year long it's not a seasonal crop right you got to milk the cows every day and so you know we're talking about things like that as ways to connect all the dots right not just what do hungry people need not just what do uh, rural communities need also, what does the State Department of Agriculture need so that we can continue to be one of the most successful agriculture states in the country? But then what do farmers and rural communities need? It's connecting all of those dots together so that everybody wins when you come up with a solution. And, and we're just excited about continuing to move down that path. Our dairy producers um, have had some rough years. They haven't had fantastic prices in the last number of years. And... Our dairy folks, you know, I can't think of a, all of my farmers are great and I can't call one out over another. Um, and they want folks to be healthy and they want folks to have more milk and dairy products, not simply because they sell them, but because they're good. Yeah. And because there's a there's an opportunity for our farmers to continue to be part of a solution. Um, I think anything that can help us to to bridge uh, between need and, and meeting a market demand, um, our farmers have proven time and again that they produce. Uh, that's what they do. That's the job. Which is one of the reasons in our strategic planning meeting at the Food Bank Council of Michigan, you said, just tell me what you need. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got a group of guys and men and women who farm in this state that can really do whatever it is that we need done. And I think that would be a great topic to talk about in our third segment with Scott Piggott, the CEO of the Michigan Farm Bureau 
Jerry Brisson, and I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're all three back with you in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back with you, Scott Piggott, the CEO from Michigan Farm Bureau, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. And uh, gentlemen, when we closed out the last segment, we talked about, I don't know, I'm going to just say the greatness, because <laughs> that's really what I feel, the greatness of our farmers and agricultural leaders in this state. Um, I know that we always say this, uh, and you kind of illustrated it, Scott, that, that Michigan is the most diverse agricultural state in the U.S. except for California. I mean, they can grow nuts and olives and things we don't bother with here. But I think that's pretty spectacular given that our growing season is pretty short. We'd have a a relatively short growing season. Uh, And you're right, Phil. We grow about 350 different commodities and crops across the state. Um, And we grow all year long. We got uh, quite a few folks with large greenhouses. Um, if you get towards the west side of the state, uh, a lot of asparagus production. We lead uh, the country in asparagus production. Blueberries. Uh, people don't think of potato production in our state, but mm. we lead the country in. And uh, anytime you have a bag of potato chips, we lead the country in chip potatoes. Right. Um, and they're raised all over the place. They're raised in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, they're raised throughout the, the middle part of the state. Um, when I think about our farmers and the things they produce, there's a lot of things on their minds right now. You know, what are they, what are they, we always ask our farmers, and I get to see, we have a, our large annual meeting for Michigan Farm Bureau coming up soon, and I get to see a couple hundred of my favorite friends, a couple thousand of my favorite friends, and uh, whenever I sit with them for dinner at night uh, for different meetings, I ask them, you know, what keeps you up? What keeps you up at night? Uh, farm profitability is right at the front of their minds. How are they going to continue to live and grow in this way of life that has a lot of unpredictability. Uh, you're living within God's domain when it comes to the weather. Uh, things that happen in other parts of the world that change their price structures. Uh, input prices that are well beyond what they can control. Labor is a mm. big issue in Michigan. Sure. Um, when you have a lot of hand harvested crops, there aren't a lot of people that you know, are that we're teaching our children to grow up and you know pick fruit or, or pick, uh, pick vegetables. So having labor, particularly within our fruit and vegetable growers, uh, but our, our dairy folks too. Um, I think Jerry mentioned it last segment. Dairy, it's the milk, cows get milked every day. And finding the people who can help to get that done. Uh, we implement technology. Uh, we have several farms that implement robotic milkers. So mm-hmm. they have uh, robotic, it's really kind of a fun thing to see. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's not even that new of technology, but uh, labor is on the forefront of their minds. And farm succession. You know, as farms continue to shrink in numbers in our state, uh, right now uh, it's, there's about, as I mentioned, about 40,000 folks who farm in the state. And about 80% of the production comes from 20% of those farms. Hmm. So when you think about there's a lot of small farms in our state that are, it's wonderful, take farms of all sizes. As I mentioned, uh, if you can be viable on a small number of acres, that's awesome. Uh, we all have to recognize, though, that our food system has changed. Hmm. 50% of the groceries in our country are bought from Walmart. Uh, and understanding that the, the structure of how we get food into people's hands, uh, it's really changed. And it's changed a lot in the world that 
the Food Bank Council of Michigan and Gleaners and all of our other food banks, it's changed the way that you fulfill a need. Sure. Um, farmers want to be a part of that. So if we can continue to produce, if there are times of excess where we can be, um, farmers don't beat their chest very well. We're not, we're humble people and we don't like to talk about the things we do. Um, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing uh, type of mentality. Uh, but they're very proud of their opportunities that they have to support good causes. And uh, we want more of that. I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic was that the the supply chain has some kinks in it, right? We we got to look at how food is produced from beginning to end. We got to know where those choke, choke points are. We got to know the raw materials we need and where they're coming from. I mean, we ran out of aluminum a couple times, and it's not that we didn't have green beans. We didn't have aluminum cans to, to put them in. And and so I do think that, that our looking at um, all of these farms, the big ones and the small ones, and thinking carefully about that mix as a good thing, right? That, that economies of scale are a good thing for, for a business plan for sure. But there are some downsides to, to having too many, too many resources in one area. I think the pandemic definitely showed us that it's nice to have uh, different fallback positions, if you will, when you think about the whole food supply chain. One thing is for sure, tomorrow we're going to want to eat. Right. There's a, or maybe some of you are less voracious than me. So maybe it'll be two days for you. But I promise you, I'm going to want to eat again today and probably tomorrow a couple times. Right. So so putting the putting the right, um, uh, if you will, mix together of of growers of different sizes, of different kinds of crops, of of per, the ability to then produce the food products that we need from those crops and thinking about where all the raw materials need to come from is the game, right? And we believe that food banks, because we're, we're a system of scale, right? We feed hundreds of thousands of people and it's a, it's a constant thing that we do all the time. We think we're part of, we certainly can be part of the problem in terms of what we need uh, and, and not always having the resources that we want to have to get what we need, but we think we can be part of the solution too. And I think one of the exciting things about thinking about this, this, uh, what, what Michigan has to offer this, uh, the whole country as far as examples and opportunities to think about how to connect all these dots. It's, it's one of the things I'm most excited about as we think forward about where we could be. You mentioned something, Jerry, that, that agriculture, diversification is very important in agriculture. If something, if a crop, a certain crop has a low price, it's nice to be diversified so you can lean into something else. As farms have changed over time, uh, you can, you know, the, probably the listeners have a pastoral view of, of a, a grandfather's farm or an uncle's farm that had sheep and it had, it had chickens and it had beef and pigs and, and, and multiple crops on small, far, on small fields. Agriculture has evolved, uh, but we've retained that diversity at a statewide scale. Uh, there are a lot of needs that we can fulfill in agriculture, um, even though we have specialized in many cases at the farm scale. Economics have forced that. Um, distribution has, has forced that specialization. And just the ability to be really, really good at something, to pick a, a path and be really good at it, to be a really good dairy producer, really good cattle producer, uh, to be a really good fruit and veg grower. Um, but we have retained that ability to fall back um, by having a very diverse state. And uh, primarily given the opportunity to do that by our Great Lakes. That's the reason that we're able to do what we can. Uh, the Great Lakes give us 
fantastic microclimates to have cherry production in, in a northern climate, to have uh, asparagus production in Oceana County. Mm-hmm. Um, it's given us a blessing that other places don't have, um, and it's, it's a strength. I got to give a shout out because we talked about asparagus here a couple of times to Jamie Clover Adams, who's the head of the Asparagus Association, uh, who's the former director for the Department of Agriculture and Rural Development and also an undersecretary at the USDA. So uh, I just saw Jamie just a few few days ago, and um, she's a powerhouse for agriculture in this state as well. But Scott, I want to I take you back to something that you, you said a little earlier in this segment. And essentially, you invoke the Pareto principle that 20% of the farm... Now, wait, let me back this up. We're the second most diverse agricultural state in the United States. Mm-hmm. And 20% of the farms are giving us 80% of the production. Can you unpack that just a little bit more for us? Sure. Um, when you look at the, there's an agricultural census performed across the country um, at a regular pace. And when you look at that census of all the farms in the state, the majority of them uh, are, are small in size. You know, they're 10 acres or less. They produce less than $10,000 a year of, of actual product from their farms. When you think about production agriculture, the ability to feed people, the ability, ability to have enough product to make a difference when it comes to hunger, um, you can put all those small farms together, but understand that the guys that are farming full-time, that are farming multiple generations, um, family farms, 96% of the farms in our state are, are family-owned and operated farms. Uh, those farms are the ones that are putting the majority of food on the table. Um, again, small farms, fantastic. Take as many as we can. But there has to be a recognition that the guys that are farming full-time at a scale where it's production agriculture those are the folks who are truly creating uh, the food supply for our state and our country. You ever seen them harvest the cranberries? I have. It is a fascinating thing to watch. We're we're uh, we're in that season now where you know everybody's getting those cranberries for the holidays. And I'll tell you what, I got to watch one time, and I was like, why? Wow, Anyway, I know that's a little off topic, but I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about the diversification, right, and how many different products there are that you certainly know about, but you don't think about them being in Michigan, right? You just don't think about it. It's like, well, where do they come from? You know, it's one of the things, and Farm Bureau has this education program that they run that that teaches kids where food comes from. And that's just another thing that I think is so important as we think about how how to support the future of agriculture, getting people interested in it. Uh, I'll tell you what, if if someone's going to make a career out of it, it's got to make enough. We got to make sure it does, right? Yeah. Well, I think that education, you know, I think there's a few of us adults who could probably benefit from where does your food come from, too. It doesn't have to just be kids. So maybe there's an adult (laughs) literacy version of this floating around. So ag literacy is a big part of our efforts. Um, So we spend a lot of time at Farm Bureau helping farmers with policy-related issues, but also helping the the consumer to understand where the food comes from. And Jerry, you mentioned we have two mobile science labs that have been on the road since 2015. Uh, They've reached over 56,000 students between the third and the sixth grade. Um, there's technology on our, in those labs that come up to the school and, and teach kids where, not only where the food comes from, but jobs in agriculture that are technologically based. Uh, we have educators working inside of schools right now, along with County Farm Bureau volunteers. Uh, we have a project going on right now in a county that they reached 26, or 260 different classrooms last year and reached over uh, 2,300 teachers. Hmm. 
Uh, we continue to grow our, our relationship with teachers um, because I think you guys know that teachers, um, I think they're superheroes. I think that they spend uh, as much time in some cases with uh, the children, our children, as we get to. And uh, they see problems at their core. And uh, we love supporting our teachers to understand how can they help with childhood food insecurity. It's, um, it's a horrible thing to have a kid not being able to study because they're hungry. Food first. Absolutely. So there, let me end this segment with a, with a tweet that I read recently from um, uh, my friend Ellen uh, Volinger at, um, at, at FRAC, the Food Research and Action Center. She said, there is, there is hunger in every community. It's not an urban problem. It's not a rural problem. It's a problem everywhere. And I tweeted back at her and I said, well said, Ellen. Hunger is also a we problem. Jerry and I are back to close out this edition of Food First Michigan. You come back and be with us. Thanks, everyone. Back with you, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, our guest, Scott Pickett, the CEO. I almost called you Dr. Scott Pickett, but I, I know that's in your future, too. So uh, I've made him a bishop before on oh, the show, wow. which is true. a real stretch. <laughs> but anyway, Scott Pickett, the CEO for um, Michigan Farm Bureau, has been our guest today. And uh, Scott, this is normally the segment Jerry and I spend a few minutes wrapping up. And so I think this is the first time we've had the guest stay on. So you've done great today. <laughs> that's right. I feel smarter. Uh Jerry, I, you know, I'm a little slower than you, doctor, but I'll catch up. I'll listen to the show and yeah. then I'll learn it, you know, maybe the third time. But through. I'm going to say you're worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Scott, thanks for being with us today. And then uh, stay here with us while we finish this segment, because we're going to talk about you and oh. we'd like for you to hear it. <laughs> uh, allow me to say I am grateful for the opportunity. Um, and I'm grateful for the work that the, the food banks do. Um, I, d I grow an understanding of it every day. It's, uh, I, it's hard to value its importance um, to the future of our state. And I think that's important that listeners understand that. Um, we, we do this together. Um, I know Dr. Phil spent some time in Africa, and one of my favorite proverbs is, if you want to, uh, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. Um, and I think it's going to take everybody going together to be able to, to eradicate hunger in the state. And I wanted to thank you for the guy, things that you do to do that today. Well, we appreciate you, and thanks for serving with us on the Food Bank Council Board of Directors. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're in a CEO group together, and I appreciate it because, you, Jerry, in this CEO group, you have to have a sponsor. And Scott's my sponsor, so I wouldn't even be in that group. Uh, which also includes Paula Cunningham mm -hmm. and Dominic Pallone. And it's like a, another board meeting, actually, for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it's great to have you, Scott. Thanks for your leadership. And, uh, Jerry, um, one of the things that I think came out of this show with Scott today was the vulnerability that farmers have uh, in, in the operation of their business. And, and I think about the families with inflation the way it is, with, with the situation that's causing food to be as high as it is, that, and, and in between those families are food banks. And you guys are struggling with, with, with prices and having enough food for everyone as well. 
You know, I, I mentioned earlier that for every perfect storm, there's a perfect answer or something like it, right? It might not be perfect, but, you know, it's, it's uh, just to keep the analogy alive. I believe this is a solvable problem. By that, I mean food insecurity, even with the challenges we face. And I don't believe that just because of the the raw materials available in the world or or what our beautiful earth has to offer though i think that's a part of it it's because people are amazing and and you know scott's amazing in in what he does and understands about how this works the people we serve are amazing in terms of the resources they bring to bear to solve their own problems first and as i've said many times on this show people wait too long to ask for help because they want to figure it out themselves first. And amazing people are ultimately the solution to food insecurity. I believe we're going to get there. Well, Jerry, it's time for a little food for thought. Reaching potential is possible when leaders are able to separate from what's best for them from what's best. Life offers undeniable opportunities to make ourselves more by making ourselves less, and Scott Piggott is such a leader. He stands with the families we serve, he stands for the work and the mission of the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our members, and he stands against those who refuse to move and create good policy to help create a food secure state. Scott is a business leader who understands solving hunger on the front end, lessens expenses on the back end. Scott is a farmer, who understands the precarious nature of the work, and he is a person of influence who is lending us his good name and his resources to make life better for those who do not have enough access to the healthy, nutritious food they both want and need. And like us, Scott is committed to putting and keeping food first, folks, food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.